Triple M. Please, a big 48 goes welcome live in the studio. Australian football legend John Aloisi. Thanks for joining us, John. You're welcome. Of course, you're here with the Diego's tonight, mate. And I want to take you back to the early 90s where you played one game for Adelaide City. Legend has it, it was so good that uh, you got picked up by Standard Liège in, uh, in Belgium. You must have been a blinder of a game back then. I wouldn't say the game was that good. I did cause a riot because I did get brought down by uh, a Melbourne Croatian player <laughs> and uh, and someone from the crowd wasn't too happy and jumped the fence. But uh, it, it is true. I, I After that, I went to the Institute of Sport for eight months. And um, from there, a player who I played with at Adelaide City, who was uh, a Serbian player, um, knew an agent over in in uh, Belgium and uh, decided to get me some trials over there. So I ended up going over. So it was actually quite sophisticated. It wasn't your dad who knew uh, someone that owned a football club over there in Europe and said, uh, we like the look of your son. Would you like to meet my son? I'll give you some tiles maybe, um, you know, that sort of thing. So it was more sophisticated. It was a real agent. Yeah, it was a real agent, if uh, any of them are real. Uh, <laughs> no, nah, it was. and nah. My dad, he actually stayed out of most of those things. He, he did come over to see that I was all all right in the trial, and hated Belgium, uh, said it's up to you because I wouldn't be able to live here and um, gave me his blessing and uh, I ended up going over and uh, playing there for two and a half years. Now, John, there's always the talk now in the A-League with players, either how long do they stay in the competition or how long do they take? You had one game and then you spent some time at the AIS. Was there ever a thought that you'd stay back and play in Australia for a little bit longer or was it off to overseas? It was different back then. It was um, amateur football and now we've got an A-League that's professional I think we've got uh, the coaches uh, are a lot better at the moment uh, here in Australia I think that we've got some good foreign coaches and then good young coaches coming through Um, back then everyone worked so it uh, it was an opportunity for me to go play professional football and uh, I thought it was the the right time everyone can think uh, differently Mark Baduke ended up playing a couple of years here uh, Craig Moore ended up going straight from the Institute of Sport. Josip Skoko virtually straight over to everyone had their different opinions about it, and you just did what you thought was right. Now, John, uh, you were obviously a, a sublimely talented 15-year-old to get firstly a you know an, an NSL game at a very good Adelaide City side at the time, but you went over as an 18-year-old overseas, and you came back 15 years later. Of course, you popped in for holidays here and there, but 15 years later, you came back, wife and kids in tow. Obviously, your family wished you all the best over there with your career, but they would have missed you and you would have missed your friends. Is that a bit of a downside? Did that ever get to you in the 15 years you were over there? I wish I was 18. I was only 16, and that was probably the hardest time the first two years because I was um, homesick, uh, living in Belgium when it was uh, minus 7, minus 8 degrees, playing on ice fields. I didn't know what hit me. Uh, having to cook for myself. Uh, I'd, I'd lived in a household where my mum absolutely did everything for me. So I did struggle at first, but after once I got settled, you know, I enjoyed the football that much and, uh, you know, ended up getting married, having kids. I loved Europe and I loved the style of uh, the way that people live, the, the, the football. And, um, you know, I was glad to come home, but I did have a great time over there. But we've spoken to many Socceroos, uh, legendary Socceroos, Robbie Slater, Paul Ocon, uh, Eddie Krinchevich over the years, Frank Farina, and all of them said when they first went there, uh, it's a dream come true going over, but the reality is you're competing for the spots for other other players in that side, and you don't get looked after by these players. In fact, you don't get much help at all. Did you experience that too? 
Yeah, I did, um, especially uh, when I first went to Standard Liège because they were French speaking, and um, at first I didn't speak, I didn't think that anyone spoke English. But then I found out uh, after a few months that they they could speak a little bit of English, but I didn't get any help. And all they wanted to do was uh, play uh, in front of you, and so they made it hard, life hard for you. And as a foreigner, you had to be better than what the local players were. Mm. Now, John, we love people from Adelaide, but you couldn't have missed the beaches or the water. Was it Mum's Vegemite or was it the pasta? <laughs> what are the things that you miss when you go overseas as an Australian person at the age of 16 that you that you really crave for and really want to come back for? Yeah, obviously my mum's cooking, that, that was for sure. <laughs> and uh, just the family. I, I missed my family and friends. You know, I... Uh, I had a, a close-knit family when we were growing up and, uh, you know, uh, everyone knows about my brother. We used to play uh, all the time in the backyard, back, backyard, not only uh, football but cricket, tennis, table tennis, whatever we could find. And, and I didn't have that support over there. So I didn't have any friends, no family, and that, that was tough. And I did miss, miss, funny enough, not Vegemite, but I did miss the pies and pasties. <laughs> <laughs> and the pea floaters as well. Yeah, they're yeah. nice out in Adelaide. Now... Who would have thought that, you know, after a career that uh, you, you were the only Australian that scored in the three major leagues? Um, I'm going, going to go out on a limb here. That's never going to happen again in the history of Australian football. No, that's a big call. I think, that, <laughs> I think it will happen again. It, it, look, it, it's not um, the, the be-all and end-all. I think that uh, anyone that uh, is lucky enough to play in any of those leagues is uh, should be happy because... Those three leagues are considered the best in the world, and um, at the moment, I think the Spanish and uh, the, the Premier League are the best. And, and it's good to see that uh, Australians are still doing well in the Premier League. But I'm not sure. I think you're selling yourself a bit yeah. short here, John, because I'm not sure whether uh, how planned your career path was. But you played and scored in Italy. You played and scored in Spain in a top level, and you played, played and scored in uh, in England. And not only do you have to be able to score goals at that level, but you need to be able to play and get jobs in those countries. I don't believe that we'll ever see that uh, again from an Australian point of view because you need a damn good agent, number one. And secondly, I think uh, you don't get many of the top-line players around the world playing in those three leagues. No, it, it was tough because uh, the three leagues were different in style, so you have to adapt to the style uh, that you're going to and, um, you know... I, it wasn't planned. It was planned as a kid that I was going to play in Italy because that was a dream watching uh, Serie A every uh, Sunday morning. But um, then to move on to the Premier League, which uh, everyone rem- remembers the FA Cup when you were growing up and uh, watching that uh, once a year. And so that was uh, also uh, a dream of mine. And I, I couldn't believe when we did finally get to play in the FA Cup game, the, you know, I didn't realise the experience were what it would be like, but uh, they they really do take the FA Cup serious over in England, and and then Spain was just the a thing that uh, come up. Um, you know, I uh, my, I was relegated with Coventry, and uh, I didn't really want to play Championship football, and uh, and Osasuna came up. They they'd seen some uh, the footage of me playing in England, and also playing for the Socceroos, and uh, so they picked me up, and uh, that was probably the the best experience I had in Europe. Now, John, are you a better player if you go and play in continental Europe, in even a weaker competition, than you are perhaps going to a championship league side in England and hopefully working your way through there? Is there a pathway that you think can best suit a player to get to the top level in any of those competitions? I think each player is different. Um, you've got uh, players that got different styles. I believe that um, some players might 
be better suited for a, a first going to a Dutch league or a German league and then and working their way up there. Some, uh, you can see like what Tim Cahill has done and uh, and Lucas Neal, they, they started off in the lower leagues of England. They worked their way up. Um, but I, I think that there's uh, there's players coming through in Australia now that would be uh, suited for the Spanish league because they're, they're very good technically. Um, and I think that, the, you know, I'd like to see more players going over to Spain because I think that it's uh, probably the most attractive uh, league to watch because it's just the style of football watching, you know, I know that not everyone can play like Barcelona, but the style they play, I think that's what everyone would like to play like. And I don't know whether the debate about which is the best league really serves any purpose. From your point of view, which league, which competition, which team did you enjoy playing most for? Most for was definitely Osasuna. Um, I, I enjoyed the style of football and uh, the way that uh, they they also lived over there was was great. But um, for a striker that at the time in England was great because uh, it was just end to end and then you get plenty of opportunities. Uh, the Italian league for a striker is pretty tough and uh, it's very defensive. But um, I enjoyed the Spanish uh, league the most. Here on the 40 Diego's across Australia, you're listening to a special soft sombrero moment with John Aloisi. Just over the years, we've spoken to guys like Vinnie Grella and Danny Tiato just talking about the Italian League, and they said that the mentality in the Italian League was something they just couldn't get, uh, couldn't get in their own mentality. It was really hard. But, you know, what was it like when you went to Cremonese in, the, uh, in 1995 with the, you know, the South Australian lad with a lovely mullet? You know, <laughs> how, do you, how did you find, uh, you know, playing in Italy with their type of mentality? Very difficult because in Italy, if you're a striker, it didn't matter how well you played. It was as long as you scored a goal, you, you had a good game. And um, and I couldn't understand that. Um, you know, coming from Australia, the, the growing up with Zoran Matic as my coach, <laughs> yeah. you know, you had to play uh, well. It didn't matter if you scored as long as, the, you know, you played well and the team played well. But in Italy, it was uh, completely different. They were very, very defensive. And as a striker, you, you were lucky to get a chance in a, in a, in a game. And uh, if you did get that one and you missed, uh, you were criticised pretty badly. Tell us about uh, Gordon Strachan. Uh, he's a bloke who put the word club into club versus country. I know that uh, you had ongoing issues with him. He's still even, they've even unleashed him on, on players today uh, with Scotty McDonald recently having a bit uh, Middlesbrough. Tell us about your, your relationship with Gordon. Uh, he was coach at Coventry at the time when you were there. You know, a high profile player and a high profile coach at different times. Uh, but you didn't always enjoy your time with him, didn't you? No, I didn't because uh, I had a, a couple of run-ins with uh, Gordon about uh, about you know playing for Australia. He would say, "Why are you going to play for Australia for? Um, you're only going to play against um, you know people that don't really play football, like the Solomon <laughs> Islands and all that stuff." And it wasn't about that for me. It was about uh, preparing to get Australia to a World Cup, and uh, and I always wanted to play for Australia because. Uh, that was the be-all and end-all as a kid growing up. You wanted to play for the Socceroos. Um, and he made it difficult for me, and he, he made it even more so when I did come back injured after one uh, <laughs> one trip with the Aussie team, and uh, he he didn't really play me that much after that. So I, I had a few hard times with Gordon. But when you're frozen out of, your, out of the team, I think that's what he did to you at, at Coventry. He just wouldn't pick you for a long time. What's life like uh, in a place like Coventry when you're not being picked, you're not being liked by the manager, you probably feel uh, that you're ostracised by everyone at the club and uh, and there's no love for you? Oh, it's tough, but uh, you have tough moments in your career that, that, you know, you have your injuries. I did have a few injuries at uh, Coventry. I think that's what made it even tougher because... 
if if you're not playing but you're training and you're trying to improve your game, you, you can sort of see some light at the end of the tunnel. But when you're injured and you can't go out there, then the coach is uh, giving you a bit of stick for getting injured with the Aussie team, then it, it can be hard. But that's where you have to be try and be mentally strong and make sure that uh, you end up getting through that because, uh, you know, you want to... Uh, still um, play at the highest level, and if you let that get you down, then you'll never play at the highest level. Now, John, you've been obviously around the block a fair bit. You've, uh, you know, you're a bloke who's got your own independent thoughts. Now, in your discussions with uh, Gordon Strachan, I-, I suppose some of them would have got pretty heated. Are you able to speak on his level when he's having a crack at you and probably getting pretty personal? Are you able to sort of do that to him, or do you, is that element of respect that stops you from going, you know, the extra mile to really let him know what you think? I always respected Gordon Strachan because uh, not only was he a great player and he still used to train with us, he was um, also a, a decent coach. He, he had his issues with uh, uh, certain players and he would get personal sometimes. Um, well, not sometimes, a lot of the time. But <laughs> you, you didn't get personal with him because you sort of had to respect him because he could make life difficult for you, not only at your club but also at other clubs. So um, if he got personal, it, you just had to put up with it. John, I'm just wondering if Australian players will always face that battle of club versus country, even though we've made two World Cups and we're now playing in a far more legitimate path to the World Cup. Is it always going to be because of the distance and the ramifications of all that that players are always going to have the battles that you face going forward? I think that we're, yeah, for a while yet we still will have uh, problems because of the distance and uh, and because that uh, we're not uh, a Brazil or Argentina that have won a, a couple of World Cups. Uh, until then, we, we're going to have problems. As but uh, look at uh, the players now that they still um, they'll still make sure that they play for Australia and uh, they'll still make sure they come back. You know, Tim Cale's a, a prime example. He he doesn't care if uh, they still got a season going on there. He's going to make sure that he's available for Australia. That's why we love him. You know, he he's just so you know patriotic. But uh, st- sticking in England, uh, you scored a couple of you know goals in your time in England. One against Tottenham, a couple against Aston Villa at Villa Park. But the best thing that we think you ever did <laughs> was punch out uh, Danny Mills. Uh, you know, and you got a couple. Of, you got quite a lengthy oh, band. For no, that. I got three weeks and three weeks of uh, hell with Gordon Strachan <laughs> because after the game he did ask me. It was funny because. Uh, just the week before, or a couple of weeks before, I scored a couple of goals against Villa. Then I scored against John Filan when he was at Blackburn. One goal that I'll always remember was with my right foot, so it was uh, <laughs> a pretty good goal. And then uh, ended up playing against uh, Charlton, and uh, Danny Mills was on me all game and stepping on my foot and pulling at my shirt and doing other things that I won't repeat. And... Uh, I lost it and and I swung at him. I wish I actually had a clenched fist, <laughs> but it wasn't. And after the game, Gordon Strachan asked me uh, if I did hit him, and I said no, nah, I didn't. But then he saw the replay and he he was angry. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Did the video evidence get you, or did the referee just? Uh, no. It was clear for everyone. It was to see. clear for everyone. I don't know how Gordon Strachan didn't see it from the sideline, but it was clear for everyone, and uh, it was a straight red. I'm just wondering if in the English game back then, John, you almost get more respect for being prepared to have a bit of a dip. I mean, that's the nature of the game back then in terms of it was physical. And I suppose you had to show that you weren't going to take it all of the time, even though you don't want to get suspended. You have to stand up for yourself physically in that in that competition, don't you? Yeah, not only in that competition. In uh, in all leagues, you have to stand up for yourself. Uh, not that way. I don't think that you should be uh, throwing punches. There was a mistake that I made, but uh, you learn from your mistakes. Uh, but you know the stuff that goes on in the, in most leagues, you know, in Italy and also in Spain, they can get pretty dirty. And uh, 
but it holds you in good stead when you get to face the Uruguayans for a World Cup qualifier. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, good practice. Uh, now, John, of course, in Spain you played for Osasuna and Alaves, and uh, no doubt you played on the hallowed turf of uh, the Bernabeu Stadium in New Camp a few times. Now, we couldn't find the Diego's research department. Half of them been sacked today because they haven't been able to find whether you scored at either of those grounds. Have you scored there? And if you haven't, did you ever come close to scoring? I did score at uh, the Bernabeu against Real Madrid. We lost 2-1 that game, but I scored a header against Casillas. And um, we beat uh, Real Madrid 3-0 a couple of years later. And I, I played the whole game, but I didn't score, which was disappointing. But 3-0 at their ground wasn't too bad when I swapped the uh, tops with Beckham after the game. And at the new camp, the first year I was there, we won 1-0, but didn't end up scoring, uh, which was disappointing. And I think that was the only time we beat Barcelona. Well, let's rewind when you put one past Casillas. That that's unbelievable. Has anyone in club football, I'm just wondering whether <laughs> anyone in club football for an Australian has scored a more high-profile, against a more high-profile team at the Bernabeu against such a high-profile goalkeeper? Oh, I'm not too sure about that. All I can remember that I was pretty upset after the game because uh, it was 2-0 to Real Madrid and about 10 minutes left. I scored the header and uh, two minutes to go, we had a great chance and the play had it ended up missing and we could have got a draw and uh, the goal would have meant a little bit more. But still, looking back at it, I was quite happy to score there. Did you get on the phone? Obviously, <laughs> you know, we don't get the live coverage like we do. Well, in those days, we probably wouldn't have got the live coverage like we do with the EPL. Did you get on the phone to Dad and Mum say, guess what I just did? Yeah, I did. Because it, <laughs> it was exciting to, to actually not only score against them, play against Real Madrid. And after every game, my, my family want to know how I went and how the team went. So after most games, I would actually ring them. Now, John, I'm really interested. When Carlos asked you the question about scoring against Real Madrid, you could see your, mm. your head, your brain ticking over. <laughs> and, and I'm just wondering... As a striker, you, I reckon you could have almost told us who were the two guys that passed the ball to you as you scored the goal. Now, as a striker, are you the type of guy that remembers the intricate details of the, of the memorable goals in your career like they were yesterday? I think not only of the memorable goals. I think I can remember most goals that I scored, uh, even the, the tap-ins. They, they all mean a lot because every goal is important for a striker and uh, not only for a striker, I think for a team. Um, so if you ask me about a certain goal, I, I can pretty, uh, I'm pretty sure I can recall the moment. I can still recall goals I scored when I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, this guy's playing at the Bernabeu, and, you know. Of course, he's one thing that the, the Diego's do blame you for is that uh, Mark Viduca is never going to play in the A League because uh, we spoke to him once before, and he said after seeing uh, John Aloisi get booed, you know, uh, you know, when he was playing at Sydney FC, he's not going to subject himself to, <laughs> to that. And that was one of the reasons that he will not play in the A-League. Um, what, was, what was that experience like when you came back home? Oh, look, when I came back home, at first it was a pretty good experience because I was at the Mariners and uh, I arrived there um, probably, I think it was after eight or nine games. And we made the we, we won the minor premiership, made the grand final. Um, but the next year at uh, Sydney FC was a tough one uh, for me personally because uh, being the marquee player here in Australia, uh, responsibility. Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility, <laughs> which it's not like that over in Europe so much because they still rely on five or six important players in their team. The team wasn't doing well. Um, I didn't have a great season, but I was the one that copped uh, a lot of the. The blame, and um, I didn't mind that from the, the supporters or the, the media because as, as a player, you have to expect that. And uh, you, you, that's, that's what happens um, also over in Europe uh, to certain players. But 
I was a little bit disappointed with the club because I think they could have protected me a lot more and uh, and helped me out a lot more, which they didn't at the time. But uh, let's hope that they learn from that because uh, I don't think that um, a club should ever go against their player. I think they should, especially if they got a contract and um, they're paying a player, they should try and do the the utmost to, you know, uh, whatever's good for their team, their club, and that player. Mm-hmm. Now, John, uh, you know what I would have done in that situation. I've been booed a lot in my life, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Just but I, I never played at the in A League level. Got booed. Exactly right. <laughs> but when playing at the at the stratospheric level of football that you have, I've never been booed at that level, and because uh, I haven't played at that level. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know what I would have done? I would have pulled out the video of you scoring against Real Madrid yeah, and made a play right. on the big screen. But uh, Joseph Skoko, a guy who's a legendary soccerer, and we can't wait to get him in the studio for our soccer series like we are with you right now, uh, he we used to follow him all around the world like we did with you and, and talk to him in every country he played. And I think he was in Turkey uh, when, we, when we caught up to him once. And it was you know towards the end of his career. And he was saying that one of the more difficult things for him playing his football and being such a celebrated player, so successful, and he, you know he's done everything in football. But because he went over at such a young age like you did, he really missed the fact that his parents couldn't see him live every week. And that's something that I think if all players, you know, you want your family and friends seeing you every week, you're almost similar, except for the time you were at Coventry, where that probably would have been more regularly beamed into Australia. But uh, seeing you play every week, your family, and not seeing you play every week, uh, you know, what that must have uh, been uh, something that may be a little bit disappointing for you. Yeah, well, that was one of the reasons why I did want to play in Australia Plus, you know, personally, I wanted to get the experience of playing um, over here in my home country. Um, like you said, getting your family and friends to, to see you play every week. Um, but you have to understand, too, that when you come back towards the end of your career, you're not at the top of your game. Your body's not the same as you were when you were 28, 29. But uh, that's what's going to happen with players coming back. Uh, they're not going to come back at the top of their game because they're going to want to play in the best leagues in the world. And at the moment, the best leagues, and I think they'll always be, are in Europe. And so um, players that do come back, they might not be remembered for the way they were when they were younger. But, uh, you know, you just have to make sure that you do your best, that you give 100%, and, um, and, and you know, try and help the younger players that you're playing with too, you grow as players. And, uh, I, look, I've enjoyed my time here in the A-League, apart from that season with Sydney FC. The following season um, felt that uh, a little bit more sweeter when we actually won the, the, the double and... Um, I got to score against Melbourne Victory, of course, <laughs> and uh, so it, it felt good to get through that moment, and uh, and hopefully that uh, helped the younger boys understand that you're not always going to have uh, uh, everything going your way in football. Now, John, one of the things I've enjoyed in the coverage is reminiscing the NSL Grand Final between the Strikers and Sydney Croatia, and the number of great players that were playing actually in the NSL that time. And I suppose in thinking of this A League version, are we always going to undersell? the quality of our competition, our domestic competition, in, because we're always comparing it to somewhere else. Because it strikes me that if you look at the history of Australian football, there are so many great players, either young that have gone away or old that have come back or have just played their whole career in Australia. The quality is actually really good, but we perennially undersell the standard. You know what I think it is? I think that... Um the national media undersell the standard because they they keep on comparing it to the Premier League or the the La Liga and and they shouldn't because we're not uh, competing with them. Who we are competing with is uh, the Asian market and that's Japan, Korea, and uh, and really China and that. And 
So we have to make sure that our league ends up being as good as theirs and uh, and the best league in Asia. And I know you're looking back at the old NSL, and, and I've thought about this quite a bit. And uh, I think that this season, Brisbane Raw have played and uh, are playing the best football that I've seen ever here in Australia for a club side. And uh, and I grew up in the in the 80s uh, watching some great sides and great players and watching Adelaide City the, uh, win championships. And, and I can't remember them ever playing a certain style of football like Brisbane Royal. And uh, I think that's a credit to Ange, uh, the players. It's great to hear you say that because I thought, you know, doing hair commercials was a sign that uh, <laughs> football was made in this, uh, this country. Because, <laughs> you know, you've got a great patch there. Right? But, but, can you, but can you make the transition into acting now, John? Because yeah, you did right. the shampoo commercials. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and by the way, uh, the, the, the thatch of hair is looking pretty good, it especially is. compared to mine. <laughs> That's right. I don't think I'll make a transition. No. If you saw the commercials, they weren't too good. I, my, my acting's not that great. It's but, sort of like Rocky was in the, you know, Rocky 2, I think. But seriously, though, is that what the game needs, not only on the field playing great football and also the mainstream media embracing it uh, by you know having radio shows, TV shows and stuff, but also seeing guys like yourself and, uh, and maybe guys like Matty Mackay out in the media doing ads, doing promotions, so it opens it up to mainstream Australia. Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, you know, we need players that uh, are going to get sponsored by uh, certain companies and, and getting on television commercials and being on the radio, on TV, because that way that uh, people that go to the games can sort of, um, you know, they, they, they know who they are. And at the moment in the A-League, even though a player might be doing well, only real the real soccer followers know who they who they are, and we want you know everyone to know like they do in AFL here. It doesn't matter if you go to a game or not, you know who Didac is because uh, he's everywhere and he's in the papers on the back page, and it's the same with uh, same with NRL in Sydney. Um, so once that hits um, Australia with soccer, I think that uh, the game will grow even more. Maybe we need a bit of bad publicity like Didac and some of those uh, NRL <laughs> players. Uh, the bad publicity gets us on the front page and back page. It's one thing that we threw out on Twitter not so long ago, John. Why is it that um, AFL, you know, there's this there's element of AFL that gets in a bit of trouble in the media, you know, uh, with the St Kilda issue at the moment and a couple of other things. NRL seems to be every pre-season or post-season they, they get in a bit of trouble. We seem not to have had that issue uh, there was a little thing with Tim Cale a while ago. I know Hayden Fox got in a bit of trouble over in England a few years ago. But is it something about the game or the players, or is it that we're not wealthy enough <laughs> to get in trouble? I don't know if we're not wealthy enough <laughs> to get in trouble. <laughs> no, nah, look, I think uh, at the moment we probably haven't got uh, you know the media recognising every uh, footballer, soccer player that there is going around. So uh, I... When I used to uh, play for Sydney, especially because uh, I was getting recognised quite a bit, uh, you know, on the streets or whatever, I would make sure that I wouldn't do anything stupid to get in the paper because that's all I needed after getting booed on the pitch <laughs> is to do something stupid. And I think that uh, a lot of uh, us players are, are, are like that and, and they sort of know that, uh, you know, we, we've been um, taught uh, when we're growing up not to do anything like that, uh, not to give our game a bad name because we just need it to grow and grow. And if you know we're doing that, then the kids won't play it. So we want as many kids to play it as possible. So we try and be good role models. Now, John, I think we need to move on to the uh, to the soccer room. I mean, I'm I'm interested to know how it feels to be part of probably one of the most memorable sporting moments 
You've got Stephen Bradbury, Farlap, the Diego's Contiki Tour in 86, where Carlos embarrassed himself on a number of occasions. But do you ever, in a quiet moment, do you ever stop and think and almost pinch yourself about being involved in a moment, and that's how long it was, five seconds or whatever, a moment of sport that crossed all interest areas and everybody's loyalty with regards to whatever code of football and you achieve something, how does it feel and do you think about it? Well, I, I do think about it because I get stopped nearly every day and asked about it and uh, on the street, which it makes me feel good because it means that people are talking about our about football and I think that, um, you know, it's the first time that uh, people can actually say that nearly everyone in Australia knows that mm. moment and um, and to be the lucky one to have taken that penalty... I wouldn't have been so lucky if I'd missed it because I would have been remembered as the the villain to to that occasion, which uh, wouldn't have been nice. But um, yeah, of, of course, uh, you know I feel proud to be part of it and uh, just be part of history in this country is uh, something special. Now you stood there; there was millions, billions, we'll say, watching. <laughs> was there any ever thoughts of doubt or what if? I miss it or whatever. Well, just before you, Mark Viduka missed one. I mean, one of the greats of Australian football. Did that resonate with you at all that he missed that? Well, funny enough, that was the only time I got nervous in the penalty shootout was when Viduka missed. Um, I I thought, oh, no, here we go again, you know. Being involved in all these qualifiers beforehand, um, you know, just missing out. Um, But as soon as Swartz has saved the next penalty, I knew that that we're going to go to the World Cup. all I could think about was uh, the way I hit the penalties the day before in training, and um, which I hit five and all the same side, and I, I hit them very sweet. And I thought if I do the, exactly the same tonight, um, I'll you know take Australia to the World Cup, and that, that's all that was on my mind. And and so I was uh, extremely confident. I think that I it's uh, the most confident that I could ever feel in in a moment like that but tell us about the walk i mean you've had the uruguayan guy i think might have missed just before you took the kick yeah so yeah so swartz has saved it now you're walking it's probably a you know 35 meter walk from the from where you are with the team uh you know what it means Uh, look for me i was nervous (laughs) for you my wife was crying next to me before you even took the kick uh what were you thinking during that walk like I said, I was just um, saying to myself, uh, you know, you're going to take Australia to the World Cup, um, hit it the, the way you did it uh, in training the day before. And it, it was a funny moment because there was 83,000 people there, but all I could hear were literal murmurs and, and whispers, uh, this is it, uh, if he scores, we're going, you know, mm. are you sure? And it was sort of like, you know, not everyone in the stadium was sure that that was going to be the winning penalty or, or not. So, um and and the walk didn't feel that bad. Uh, I've I've uh, had um, I've been involved in penalty shootouts before, and um, and I've been nervous, and my legs have been a little bit shaky, and uh, probably because I wasn't ready for that moment. But the moment of the that night against Uruguay, I was ready for it, and it was something that I'd been thinking about for you know the, since the Iran game when I didn't end up coming on as a, a sub. I was on the bench, and uh, just saying from that night that. Uh, I'm going to score the winning goal to send Australia to a World Cup. So I just believed that it was going to happen. And uh, so when I got the opportunity, I didn't think anything but scoring. It really was a seminal moment in Australian 
sports history. It was actually ranked third, wasn't it, as the greatest I've, sporting moment? Yeah, I, I've been told that it was uh, in the top three. I'm not yeah. sure which oh, okay. order, but we'll say first. Yeah, we'll say, <laughs> exactly right. Well, it was first for us, I can assure you. But then you went on to the World Cup and you scored uh, against Japan. We we believe that you deserved to score. It was a beautiful goal, well taken. How did that feel, scoring at the actual World Cup finals? That was just as good as the, the penalty because... Um, you know, as a kid in the backyard, you kick the ball around and, and, and dreaming that you're playing in a World Cup and uh, scoring in a World Cup. And uh, to finally get there and score, it was, uh, for me, just as good and um, probably not going to be remembered uh, as much as the penalty. But uh, personally, I, I will remember that probably just as much. I'm just wondering if you, as you were dribbling and you saw the Japanese player always wanting you or letting you go left and <laughs> protecting your right, you must have been thinking... Haven't they watched some tapes? <laughs> I'm always going to go that way, and they just let you through and shoot the goal. Yeah, it was funny. I think that the guy was surprised that I was dribbling. Maybe he did watch the tapes. <laughs> but they were shot. At, Japan was shot at that time. They were completely shot. I, I, I almost sort of look in your eye that there was nothing that was going to stop you from scoring in, in that situation, and Japan were out on their feet after what Timmy Cale had done before you. Yeah, no, that's right. I think that um, they, they could see that we just overran them and... Um, they they didn't know what had happened in the last seven minutes of the game, and you know I uh, took full advantage of that. Tell us about the mentality of that 2006 World Cup side. You made your way through the second to the second round, uh, such a you know memorable game against Croatia uh, to to draw that game and then draw the eventual winners in Italy. And of course, everyone knows how we went out. But tell us about the mentality of the squad. Was there real belief? that you guys could knock over Italy that day, even before the game? Was there this real sort of arrogant belief that you could do it? Yeah, there was. Uh, I think there was belief because um, the, the way we beat Japan uh, and then the way we played against Brazil, we played against the uh, the, the world champions of 2002 and uh, we were just as good as Brazil. We were unlucky not to get a result out of that game. And I think from there we just thought, well, we can beat anyone and to to come from uh, you know a goal down and against Croatia and then you know be two one down and then come back and and draw that game and get through, we thought well we don't need to fear anyone we, you know we can beat uh, the Italians no problem and um, even during the game I I actually felt when I did come on as a sub I could see you're saying in my eyes you could see that I was going to score against Japan. Uh, I could see the Italians actually really scared. You know, when you look into someone's eyes, you can see what's going on. And uh, and I remember Gattuso. Gattuso, he didn't know what was going on because we just had a lot of possession. They, they We didn't create a lot of chances, but I think they were scared that it was going to go on to extra time and we are just going to outrun them. I'm really interested to know, and you know what sta- what happens in the dressing room, st- you know, stays there. But uh, except for was, when you're tell, ex- talking to the DA, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no. How was Lucas Neal? after that game, in the dressing room straight after that game? You know what? I don't remember the the way Lucas was. I can't uh, um, remember actually uh, speaking to him that much in the changing room after the game. All I remember was uh, there was quite a few uh, people that came in. Uh, uh, Frank Lowy came in and um, he handed the phone to Mark Paduka and said that... Uh, uh, yes, Mr. Prime Minister, I'll just hand you to Mark Viduka. <laughs> and uh, and Viduka was probably in a daze as much as anyone else. And uh, he just got the phone and goes, yeah, how you going, mate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that he say, didn't say, hi, Mr. Hawke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, John, you're a striker and strikers score goals and then strikers celebrate goals. Now, I'm just wondering throughout your career, the celebrations, spontaneous or planned, and then talk to us about 
the ripping the shirt off celebration for the Socceroos because it almost seemed like the most appropriate way to celebrate the goal. Well, uh, I've only ever planned two celebrations. One was with Coventry, and there was a silly celebration. I think you could probably uh, get it up on the on Google somehow and YouTube, and it's it doesn't look good. But uh, the the night against the uh, Uruguay it was spontaneous. I um, I knew where my family was going to sit because I asked the day before. Um, being cheeky, where do I have to run to when I score the winning goal? <laughs> and um, when that did happen, uh, I, it's funny because I don't know if any of you guys will remember this. Uh, Chris Kalantzis, he played for Sydney Olympic. He scored a, a famous goal, I think it was against St. George um, at Parramatta Stadium. And when he scored, uh, the crowd went crazy. I think quite a few people ran on the pitch. He took off his shirt and started running around yeah, with it. Right. And uh, Les Murray was commentating. He goes, Kalanzi scores, Kalanzi scores, and the crowd erupts at Parramatta Stadium. And for the next six months, my brother and myself <laughs> would go outside <laughs> and just every time would score, would do that celebration. And I think that's probably what popped into my head when I did score that uh, that penalty because... Uh, <laughs> The crowd did erupt that night. So. Yeah, John, with regards to your future beyond playing now, you're in you're in the next phase of your of your football career and coaching. Now, the Diego's have got an idea for you. Don't worry about coaching defenders. Don't worry about coaching midfielders. I believe you should set up an academy, the Penalty Box Academy, because I reckon. 99.9 percent of your goals throughout your whole career were scored in the penalty box. Do you move instinctively in there, or, or do you know just way ahead of time what you're going to be doing when you're scoring goals there? I think a lot of the time you know your players, you know where they're they're going to most of the time uh, try and put the ball, and uh, and you try and yeah uh, anticipate before you defender. And if you find the half a yard in the box, that that's enough to, to end up getting a, a shot on goal or. Or, or getting a goal, and um, and you you sort of know when it's uh, going towards goal, which way the keeper could parry it, and and uh, you know the, out of the the tap-ins, you know there's a, there's a hundred times that you run in and it doesn't fall for you, but uh, you just have to keep on making those runs and, and believing that it's going to drop for you, and and a lot of the time it does. Carlos, have you registered that business name? Because I saw John's <laughs> eyes just light up there. <laughs> the John the Penley Box Academy. I like it. It sounds good. When we do a Socceroo series, and uh, we love doing this, and this has been you know, fantastic, we do a bit of a word association uh, thing with our special guests. Um, I'm going to go through a series of questions here, and we want you to give honest answers, of course. So let's start now. What was your best goal ever? Um, go back to uh, 1997, uh, Australia v Mexico in the Confederations Cup, and you'll see the, the best goal I've scored. <laughs> what about the worst goal you've ever scored? <laughs> no, there's no bad goal. <laughs> I did score a handball once against Sevilla across uh, ah. the so uh, I wasn't well liked in Seville. What about the uh, biggest injustice? Oh, that was clearly <laughs> the Italian game, the penalty. When did you get away with murder? The handball. <laughs> <laughs> what about your biggest mistake? Um, oh, there's been plenty of mistakes, but um, you know I, I don't like to be remembered for doing something uh, stupid on the pitch. And I think uh, Danny Mills' moment was pretty bad. <laughs> what about the biggest club that you could have joined? Um, oh, there was. Uh, it's funny because as a as a player, you don't know um, whether to believe everything from your your agent or not, but. Uh, I was on the verge of joining Hamburg um, when I was uh, at Alaves just after the World Cup, but I actually did sign for Panathinaikos, which was um, a big club and still is a big club, and uh, I failed a medical. 
<laughs> you failed the cop test, John. <laughs> so what happened? If, what did the Greek I've, doctors I've, do? No, I think that, look, they, they were very professional. They took scans of everything, and I think they could foresee an injury coming to my knee. <laughs> <laughs> were they right? And they were right. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't that year, but it was a few years later. This is a bit of a tough one. Who was the best player you've ever played with? That is a tough one because I played with uh, quite a few great players, and um, but... Uh, that I partnered with was probably uh, Sava Milosevic, who I partnered with at Osasuna. He was probably the best that I played alongside. And what about the best player you've played against? Um, I was only 19 at the time, but I have to say Baresi was the, the best player. Jeez, not a bad name there. Mm. Just on that point there, John, Vinny Grella once told us he was given a bath by Zinedine Zidane in one of his early games when he was at Empoli in Italy. Did you ever get given an absolute bath by a defender? where you just, it could have been one game, it could have been a number of times you played against him, you just could not get the better of a defender. Oh, there are probably plenty of defenders <laughs> that I got a bath against, but um, I have to say that the, for me, Barese, at that time, I just, the, he was, the for me, I never knew that a defender could be that smart. You know, he would just nudge you before you controlled the ball, so you'd be off balance. Um, he would know when to let you dribble to... You know, he would just jockey you, and then the right time to tackle you. He, you just didn't know how to read the, what he was going to do. If he was going to tackle you straight away, or um, if he was going to try and intercept the ball, or, or let you turn, he just knew exactly what to do. And 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 he had that defence working with him like I, you know, I'd never seen before, playing offside or dropping off. And um, so I only played against him once, but it was a good experience. And finally, for me, and then I'll let you off the hook. Who was the best soccerer ever? I think uh, the best Socceroo ever, that's, that's a Including tough one. Including the guys who are running around at the moment. If yeah. you can look into the future, it's a, it's a question we we often give and there's people <laughs> sort of sit on the fence. But Big some, time. Yeah, some people come out and, uh, and actually tell us what they look, think. Look, I have to say that um, for me, the best player to ever be produced in Australia has been Mark Viduka. Uh, he hasn't always performed for the Socceroos. I don't think it's all been his fault because uh, he played as a lone striker a lot and um, and I don't think that suited him too well because he didn't score the goals that he could have scored if he played alongside with someone. But um, you have to say that the guy who's actually performed um, the best, I think, that uh, Australia, the Socceroos have seen is Tim Cale because he always seems to step up at the right time to score big, important goals. Um, we've probably had better players than Tim, but to, to actually the players that have played at soccer level, Tim has always been the one that's per, produced the goods. Well, John, as far as the Diego's are concerned, mate, you scored in three of the biggest leagues in the world. You scored the winner that got us to the World Cup for the first time in, in decades. You, you know, scored against Melbourne Victory a number of times <laughs> for Sydney and also uh, Melbourne Heart. Uh, you've just been an ornament to the game. Thanks very much for joining us on this soft sombrero moment. Thanks for having me. That was a very special soft sombrero moment with Australian football legend John Aloisi. Triple M.